No, and I, I turned it on, but now I started it. So I'm gonna have to edit all of this conversation out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to do a topic on Lent because Lent, I think, is just something that people don't really care about anymore. Um, and for probably many good reasons. Um, but I think there's something to reclaim within Lent. Uh, especially this year, really coming out of the pandemic, uh, kind of from a, a pastor's perspective, our church as a congregation has really forgotten a lot of its routines that it used to do before the pandemic. And so I'm, I'm also with the, the rest of the congregation, I'm trying to use Lent as a space to um, help us kind of come back to the things that we want to be a part of, kind of remind people that we do have stuff here. Um, that we are a church that is centered in gathering with each other and experiencing community with each other. So that's kind of on the congregation side. But then here with Unorthodox, we've never really talked about Lent before. We are an unorthodox group. And so, you know, I really wanted to maybe explore the meaning of Lent for us. Um, and I, I have it here on the handout, but I have two questions I wanted to start off with. So one, what was Lent like for you either growing up or if you were part of a church community before this, where Lent was something that was done, what was Lent like for you? Laura? Um, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church over there in uh, Ballard, and I typically only saw people eliminating things that were, you know, sort of like, I'm not going to eat sugar anymore, um, not as much adding, like, I'm going to read my Bible and stuff, um, but it didn't ever circle back personal kind of a thing. Individual. Yeah, yeah, individual and personal. Okay, thank you. What else? Uh, Cheryl in the back and then Johnny. So I grew up Presbyterian in Iowa, and uh, we, the Lent potlucks were a huge thing for us. And it was nothing about giving up anything, because that's what we did as a Catholic tradition. Oh. <laughs> so Cute. we were all about, oh my goodness, the ooey gooey casseroles that people would <laughs> and Mexican wife in Chicago experience Midwest casseroles. And <laughs> it's an experience, let me tell you. <laughs> Often it would be like, why is there tuna in this? You should not have tuna in this. Johnny? I grew up uh, going to the Pentecostal and Southern Baptist Church at the same time. So didn't hear about Lent until I got to college and started studying religion. So Lent wasn't a part of your... Not life? even a mention of it. Do you know why? Probably because it was Catholic. All right. And we are not Catholic. Wow. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I don't even remember... Like, I don't remember seeing people walking around with ash on their forehead. Yeah. Yeah, like, it wasn't on my radar at all. Mm -hmm. I second that. I was in the Midwest conservative. Was Catholic and we all lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially you. Stations of the Cross and all that and Ash Wednesday. And was that more of a communal experience for you? Communally, but 
Huh? Community. Communal? Like, did you did you do that as a church community? Yeah. Did it feel like you were doing that as a church community? Yeah, it was an it was an obligation. I went to a Catholic school, so we auto resolved the yeah. university. Yeah. And I was I remember meeting someone once who didn't know what Lent was, and I was like, you're from outer space. Just never everybody did it, you know. Yeah. I think. Becky. So I grew up with always soup suppers for Lent, uh-huh. which was uh, 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 like a taking down of food, a not overdoing, or is how I saw it. And years ago, or when I was younger, it was always giving up something. You give up chocolate, you give up TV, or whatever. Yeah. But um, in more recent years, you would like try to give up judgment or give up that, or or even adding something. So that tradition, you could watch it more. They're saying, well, let's add something instead of taking away something. So yeah. Used to be give it up, but then that's what's changed. Okay. I knew that it existed. We had a lot of um, Irish and Polish people in our community that were Catholic, uh, and then other denominations that maybe did Lent. So I knew that it existed. We didn't, I didn't, our family didn't do anything with it. Um, But my family, my parents in the last like 10 years started going back to the Methodist church and they had heard about Lent and they decided that they, for Lent, that they were going to give up wasteful water practices and thought that that was something that they could get behind. It was a positive change. It was something that, that could even last beyond Lent. Um, and it was just kind of like a challenge of like, how can we make a choice that has a positive effect on our community? That's pretty cool. Okay. I'm going to hold on to that one. Yeah. Steve? Um, well, on a completely different note, in the, se- <laughs> in the 70s, I went with a bunch of folks to the Mardi Gras. And we had a great time. <laughs> and, uh, and Mardi Gras is amazing. Uh, face painting, staying up till 5 a.m. Uh, but we have many jokes about Lent, like, oh, I'm giving up celibacy for Lent, or I'm giving up sobriety for Lent, or, Lent, or whatever. So there was, that, there was that popular notion that, uh, that you know, mocked Lent. Yeah, kind of poking fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what was... What do you think the, the belief system then that was being conveyed to you during either those Lent practices or, because you said it, not having Lent at all? What do you think the belief systems? Uh, what do you think the belief systems were that were being conveyed to you? It looks to me like you got to create the need so you can sell the product. <laughs> you know, bring you down low enough, let you know what a worm you are, so that you know you need redemption and have to come under the church. Wow. Love That's that. pretty yeah. negative, but that is what I think. Yeah, yeah. Like salesmanship. Yeah. Well, consumerist church, so yeah. Heavy. I didn't grow up with it. However, I I felt like I needed like do part B, which is in the, our last church in the valley here, which was pretty conservative. It started to come up as kind of like this trendy thing to do. It and, I, and that it was you know they had they were. They were, they were trendy and hip because they were, you know, bringing Lent to the forefront of doing Stations of the Cross. I believe it went through that. Yeah, but that was outside of the small group. That wasn't the church. Well, it was still part of the church. Yeah, yeah. Small group, right. but anyway, it, anyway. Yeah. So that, as a reflection, it felt odd. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What else? What, what, what are the belief systems you think were conveyed in either how you celebrated Lent that time back then, or how you, it was absent from your life? I feel like um, it was, it's pretty consistent with this. It's kind of an antagonistic relationship with anything that's not 
mm. fundamentalists mm -hmm. and evangelical uh, in those traditions, specifically yeah. the Assemblies of God and, and Southern Baptist, which I didn't realize until I, like I said, I went to, went to Westmont and we started taking religion classes and doctrine classes and stuff like that and realizing, oh, there's this whole rich world of, of liturgy that exists within the, within the Christian church that, um, you know, that, that it's, it's very communal in nature and stuff like that that I completely missed out on because it was very much like, we don't do that. Yeah. The Catholics do that. Yeah. Or, you know, the Episcopalians do that or whatever. That's not what we do. So we're going to do what we do. That would be that to them over there. Did you do anything for Good Friday back then? You know, no, we didn't have services. It was really interesting. And it's funny because I only worked in Presbyterian churches as a, as a minister. So, I mean, going from nothing at all to, I mean, we just all the, um, just the lectionary throughout the whole year and all the, and all the different Sundays and all the different, uh, yeah. was, I loved it. Yeah. It, was, it felt so, um, to, to know that the church around the world yeah. was doing the same thing and, you know, practicing these, these, uh, you know, celebrating the atonement, celebrating, you know, um, um, sorry, Edward yeah. Knight, so my brain is, <laughs> you know, celebrating um, Ascension, mm -hmm. Sunday, Easter, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, like all those traditional days that the church celebrates that I grew up not even knowing about. I knew what Good Friday was, but we didn't have a service at yeah. the church. Yeah. It was just Easter, and everything was about Easter. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, Becky. Um, it's a big musical highlight too, not just Easter, but on Good Friday, the things we would sing, and we mentioned Stations of the Cross, the things we would sing in the dramatic music, it was a real big part of my choir life. Yeah. And yeah. extra instruments, and big deal during Lent. And um, the bells, boom. I would love to have that bell. Uh, that's, uh, thank you all for saying this. I, and I'll even add for me, it was a, a similar to like Becky and Laura actually. And, um, Soup suppers every Wednesday and giving something up, which was very individualistic and personal, but not a communal part of the church or anything like that. And and really, the the the, the belief system there was that you were preparing yourself to realize how shitty of a person you were, so that on Easter you could realize that God makes you not shitty. Um, and that was all that I knew about Lent. And kind of you know going like kind of laying that as maybe the groundwork for today. I want to go through Lent historically and just kind of see how the shifts are. And as I do this, I want you to remember, there was the church right after Jesus that was very connected to the original meaning of what Jesus and the, the disciples were doing. Then there was the Constantinian church, which really started to separate itself from that. But as time went on, people did not have the tools to look back at the historical context. So they, they, they were doing what they thought people had always done with Lent without the ability to look back and realize, oh, no, that's not, that's not what was going on. At least until you get to, uh, you know, the 19th and 20th century when that starts to happen. And that's kind of the focus of today is we now know what the original church did with Lent. And yet we either don't participate in it or we participate it in, in this way that we've always participated in it with. Conveying the same belief system of substitutionary atonement that, you know, we grew up believing, I guess. Um, so kind of the pinnacle here is going to be the first church's section. 
And, and so, you know, Johnny kind of brings up the liturgical calendar and um, the lectionary, and it's true. Across the entire world, there are churches that celebrate the same Sundays every year, that read the same exact readings, no matter whether you're here or in Eastern Europe or in Europe somewhere. Um, any church connected to the lectionary, they're reading the same readings every Sunday as, as we do here in this church. And I think there's something really cool about that. Um, and, and, and the lectionary itself does come kind of from the pattern of the original church communities in the sense that we do have writings that described that people would gather, they would read from scripture, they would sing songs, they would pray, they would have someone talk about the text, and they would have communion, and then they would be sent out, they would have a, a closing. And that's, that's what every mainline Protestant and Roman Catholic church has today. It's the same exact order. They just add their own flair to it, which for us is European music and very, very antiquated European music. Um, no offense to anybody who likes hymns, but it is. Um, but, but, but being connected to something from back then, I think, is really cool. And so that's what I want to do with Lent. So if you think about Lent this way. Christian churches have only been celebrating Christmas for a thousand years. So Christianity is 2,000 years old, but the idea of celebrating Jesus' birth didn't happen until a thousand years later. So Christmas, which is a big hoopla, right, is not an original thing to the original Christians. And there's a lot of things that date back. Substitutionary atonement, for example, dates back a thousand years. Um, ransom atonement dates back 1,500 years, but none of them are original to the, uh, the original Jesus community and the people that followed immediately after. Lent and Easter are. As long as the church has been alive, Christians have been participating in both Lent and Easter, and there's something really, really cool about that to me. We are still engaging in something that the very first Jesus followers engaged in. Um, the problem is we don't engage it the way that they did. Um, so one, it's important to remember that the Jesus movement started off as a Jewish movement. And the reason I share that is not just to lift up our Jewish siblings today, but also to say that it entailed uh, Jewish theology and more importantly, it entailed a Jewish covenant with God through Abraham and Moses. Those were active things amongst Jesus and all of his followers and all of the Jewish people immediately after. Now I say that because that group, that Jewish group, did not participate in Lent. Not because they were against it, but because they had already gone through the process of understanding what was behind this way of life and following Jesus. What Lent becomes then is a 40-day period for people who are coming to the movement to be very intentional, and that's the key word today, is intentional, about understanding what this way of life entailed. This had nothing to do with understanding your own sin, not in an individual way at least, and had nothing to do with understanding that you were adopting a belief system. This had everything to do with you were coming into a Jewish way of life that Jesus had created. Now the, the, the stick up here is that you have a Jewish movement and you have Gentile people coming into it. And that wasn't allowed. So how do you have Gentiles come and be part of this Jewish movement? Do they have to become full-fledged Jewish people? 
The answer they came up with was no, they do not. Um, but there still needs to be this 40-day period of intentionality and understanding what is this Jesus movement really about. And then Easter, uh, as I said, Christmas was a thousand years later. Easter has always been the primary holiday for Christians, going all the way back to the original Jesus movement. And so you'd have these 40 days up until actual Easter, and that's when people would get baptized. But again, we've talked about baptism. They're not getting baptized into a belief system. They're getting baptized into a way of life. It was a ritualistic uh, commitment that was being made to following this way of life. Does that, yes, yeah, Steve? Would part of that have been issues around security? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question though. Um, The other thing with Lent in this, t oh yeah, Bob, sorry. Did Passover and Easter always align? I don't think so. Easter is based on the lunar calendar. Okay. This, so year, this, year, this year, this year, this year, Lent, or I'm sorry, Passover and Monday, Thursday are the same day. But I don't think it's been that way in the past, so I don't think so. They are always around the same time, though. Right. Did the early Jesus followers do Easter as a competition, or like this is what we have instead of, they didn't, they didn't keep doing Passover, did they? they and did. then added Easter? The, the Jewish followers did, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. The Last Supper was Passover Seder. Yeah. yeah. But they, uh, they did because they never envisioned starting a different religion. They were always Jewish. A lot of what we read about in the, in the epistles, Paul, like when he's talking to his, writing letters to his community, he's really talking to them about how do you be a Gentile in a Jewish world and still be a Gentile? How can, how can these two things coexist without you needing to become Jewish? Um, the problem is Christians have read Paul's letters as though it's for everybody and not just Gentiles. Paul believed that Jewish people had their covenant relationship. Paul himself had his covenant relationship. They were good, they were righteous with God. That's why Lent was not a necessity. Um, it was always more about how do you include Gentile people in this thing. That's a good question, though. Um, and, and the other thing I want to say about Lent is it, it wasn't really that strict in those first couple hundred years. Uh, people were intentional about ways in that time, fasting, praying. Um, it's not like just for one year, right? Then they were baptized. Would you do Lent after you were baptized? No, you wouldn't. Right, so just like yeah. one time. And it, was so, and, and it was just the 40 days before Easter. Right. Um, and this was, this was entirely for new people coming into the community. Once they went through that process, they did not need to go through this again. It's like a new members class. Huh? Yeah, it's like, yeah, a, it's new like a new members class. class. Exactly. That's a good way to look at it. Lent, the new members class. Um, and, it, it, and it really did culminate in mass baptisms on Easter Sunday, to the point that the early church, this was more the church in Jerusalem, kind of the mother church area, would not baptize people until Easter Sunday. Of course, you've got rural churches all over, you know, the empire who would do baptism still. Um, but for the most part, with the bigger churches, people would not get baptized until that Easter Sunday, until they go through those 40 days of kind of intentional reflection on, and understanding what this way of life entailed and whether or not they want to be a part of it. So that gets you about the first 300 years. Those first 300 years, as time goes on, um, there's this kind of up and downs of the, the church and Jews and Christians are being, being very persecuted, and then they're kind of being favored, and then they're persecuted again, and then the separation starts to occur where only the Jewish people are persecuted, and Christianity starts spreading, 
and becoming more favorable amongst the empire. Um, to the point that when Constantine decriminalizes Christianity, it's because Christianity is kind of already spread to all facets of the empire. Um, and so he decriminalizes Christianity. It's not declared the state uh, religion of the empire until after his death in 380, but it's still enough that Constantine leads the Nicene uh, Council. And it's at the Nicene Council that one, they adopt the canon of the Bible, and two, um, Lent becomes a formalized practice of Christianity. And, you know, the real big shift there is that now the church is wealthy and it has power. And it, it, it is now looking at its own rituals through the lens of that power rather than through the lens of Jesus standing up against a powerful empire. Um, services become flashy, and then fasting, penitence, alms, almsgiving all become formalized practices of so it gets to the point that Christians in the empire are now, kind of as you said, Bob, obligated to fast during that time in certain ways. Penitence, which is really an inward focus of your own sinfulness, and of course, almsgiving. Um, and, and really, this is the start of the medieval church. I have medieval churches split here. The difference between the Constantinian churches and the medieval churches is that Constantine in Rome is the sole leader of this whole church, right? That's why we call it the Roman Catholic Church. But after the fall of Rome, that gives birth to the nation states. And so now you have nations that are not united in an empire, but they still all have Christian churches. So then you've got powerful leaders in each country. You've got the Pope, who is the single most powerful person during the medieval era. Um, but you've got all of these other churches that are tremendously powerful as well. And so you see another shift, and the big shift there within the medieval church is this is where a focus during Lent on individual sin um, highly, highly comes into play. The whole purpose of Lent is for, for an individual to focus on their own brokenness and their need for Jesus' atonement. And then, of course, um, the, you know, the cross or the, the empty grave is the thing that just liberates us all. Uh, but it's all, it's all very focused on individual uh, sinfulness. Now, we've talked about this before, but let's say it again. Why is that important, that the church shifted to giving people a, a, an individual focus on their own sin? So they don't rise up against the church. Yes. Or any or powerful any, any group. Yeah. So, so I Say that again, Terry. Why is it important? So that, like, then the focus is like, oh, it's this thing that I'm doing, as opposed to like, hey, as a group, we're seeing this stuff, and we're going to rise up and we're going to fight against the stuff that. Oh, we're so to prevent union. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and part of that is that again, the church is the is the single most powerful entity because it's the one thing that unites all of these nation states. The Pope is the most powerful person, and of course, those nation states are constantly vying with each other to be uh, the most powerful nation state. And every time one of them became the new superpower, they were blessed by the Pope. Till Charlemagne came, takes the crown from the Pope and puts it on his own head. That's a different story for a different time. Um, but the Pope is the single most powerful person. And to have people rise up against abuses of power, injustice, etc., would be bad for the church and be bad for those nation states. So that really carries us all the way into the modern church world. Um, I would say our understanding of Lent, the stuff that we talked about this morning when I asked you these questions, are all rooted in medieval theology and medieval Christianity.
And again, the crazy thing is people just didn't know that it started there. They thought this is what people back in Jesus' time were doing as well, because they didn't know any better. And between the medieval churches and the modern churches, you have historical criticism come out. You have people uncovering documents and writings and stuff, the ability to start looking back farther, um, but they just choose not to. And they just continue to, I mean, a big part of that is Ill illiteracy was absolutely monstrous, right? People didn't have the ability to research. Only the church itself had the ability to go back in time and look at this. Bless you. Um, then we get to the modern churches, which I would say is the churches that we all grew up with. So I do want to give a shout out to the Eastern churches. Now, I'll admit, I don't know a ton about Eastern Christian theology. I do know a little bit. Um, one, Lent for the Eastern churches has always been communal. They have stayed away from this lure of focusing on individual sin. Um, and have maintained this very communal understanding of their faith. Part of the reason that it stays communal is it's pretty strictly enforced. You, at, with your church, you are going to participate in Lent. There's no question about that. And so it stays communal-driven because everybody is kind of mandated to be there with each other. Um, and, and these parts of Lent, fasting, praying, almsgiving, penitence, are also mandated, but these are not individualistic uh, reflections. These are kind of more communal reflections. Um, what is what am I doing that affects the community, as opposed to what am I doing that affects my relationship with God? Um, Eastern churches have done pretty well for themselves, as far as theology is concerned. Do we um, have any Eastern churches in the Santa Barbara County? Yeah, we have one in Santa Barbara. Actually, Juana uh, is a member of it. It's a uh, it's Eastern Orthodox, but it's Romanian. There's, no, it's Greek Orthodox, but she goes there because it's close. because she's um, Eastern Orthodox. Um, there were people I went to school with that were Greek Orthodox, and I'm just thinking, like, yeah. interesting to see. I think there's also, if I remember, a, a Greek Orthodox yes, church on the way to Morro Bay. And in Santa Maria. And in Santa Maria? Okay, so there are some, yeah. Western churches with the modern era um, really get consumed by this mix of consumerism and individualism. It's kind of what Becky was saying. Um, sell, the, sell the need so you can have the, the solution or however you said that. It really becomes that kind of idea. A consumerist church, one, it's about becoming kind of flashy. Um, it's about self-gratification, individualism. Uh, as, as with the medieval church, very focused on just your relationship with God and how you have fractured that and what you need to, to make that reconciled again. Um, of course, we also see this other side uh, that some of you have talked about where Lent's just not part of, right? It's just not part of, of your theology or your faith upbringing. Um, and part of that, and I mentioned that here, is that church practices such as fasting, praying, almsgiving, are loosely expected. Um, here at this church, we we don't do anything in the way of telling people what they need to do during Lent. There are definitely churches that do that. This is what we're going to participate in. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had to take a class at a different different seminary that we partnered with, and there was this woman there who, during our class, she had a terrible headache, and somebody asked, like, what's wrong? And she said, oh yeah, my community's doing the Daniel Fast for Lent, and they do that every year. Don't ask me what the Daniel fast is. I don't know. Um, I just know that. Sure. Huh? 
No meat, a vegetarian. Yeah, no meat, but also like she, they, they had to get up before the sun came up so that they could eat, and then they couldn't eat again until the sun went down. Um, and they couldn't have coffee, they could only have water during the day, and so she had a terrible headache. But the cool thing about it was she was talking about this is just what her community does. This was not a personal thing she was doing, this is what her community does. And I remember being struck by that, and like, wow, I've never been part of a church where we say this is what our community does um, during Lent, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, during this modern church, giving up something for Lent is popularized. This is kind of part of the consumerist model. So you've got, I don't think I've ever been part of a church where the church said, what are you giving up for Lent? That, that thing for me came from somewhere else. It was turned in cards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I had a lot of friends growing up who didn't go to church, but they always gave up something for Lent. I'm sure you know a lot of people who didn't go to church, but they gave up something for Lent because it's just something you do. Um, it feels very... Um, New Year's resolution. Yeah. Yeah. About sugar. It's always something like that. Yeah. Sugar, chocolate, diet soda. I mean, even McDonald's with the fish filet sandwiches. That was like, right. that was a Lent. Every Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> they do every night. McDonald's. <laughs> like two for one yeah. sandwiches on Fridays. I remember it's a, a similar idea of giving us stuff that when we went to our, uh, the summer camp that we went to, you had to not have any food that you brought in. It was a Danish camp, so you would like, only have Danish food while you were there. Um, but if you were there for the four-week program, there was a weekend where uh, they brought us into town and we could do laundry and then we could get whatever food we wanted. And we binged like crazy. We would like buy huge bags of all kinds of stuff, even though it was just two weeks that we'd been depraved <laughs> of chocolate and like Cheetos and uh, then it just went really crazy, and I can imagine that that's what happens with Lent too. That you like give it up for like a month, and then, then when it's over, then like yeah, day of bring it out. Well, and Mardi Gras, the day you know, yeah, before. right, back up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think a big part of why Lent is the way it is in our kind of context today also has to do with secularization, and I don't say that as a bad thing. I say that as a good thing. Um, but as society has become more secularized there's just been a disinterest in Lent. Really, a lot of what people experience during Lent is just giving something up. And I think even that's kind of falling by the wayside. Um, I myself have done things here at the church and in you know, my newsletter coming up to Lent of, hey, don't worry about giving something up. How about you take something on? Let's do that. You know, Someone else mentioned that. Um, but when we look at the belief systems here, the belief systems that are being conveyed, that's why I started with this question, you can see this trend going through Lent, right? It starts with this intentionality of understanding and then committing to the Jesus movement. And then slowly but surely, that outward focus starts turning inward more and more. So we get to our society today where it's very much a consumeristic, individualistic uh, belief system when it comes to Lent. And the big thing there is to get to uh, Easter Sunday and realizing that your hard work has paid off, Jesus has saved your brokenness, and you now get to go to heaven, unlike the billions of heathens in the world who are going to burn in a fiery hell for the rest of eternity, right? And you, you. And Jesus hated it. Yeah. <laughs> but not you, because you're special. Um, now, if we can take the secularization 
and the pandemic that we've just gone through and tie those two things together, I think what we come out of the other end with that is that one, people just don't care about the church anymore. And, and I would say that that's the church's fault. The church deserves that. Um, but two, people don't either care about or even know about some of the rituals of the church that go back 2,000 years. They especially don't know about the original context in which these rituals came out of and what they were meant to instill. Um, so I've got us here ending off with the postmodern world. And I would say unorthodox is very much a postmodern group. We're not so much focused on the orthodoxy of the churches we came up with. In fact, we spend a lot of time deconstructing that orthodoxy. Um, and I spend a lot of time looking back at the historical context to see, one, what if that is abusive that we need to deconstruct? And what if that is meaningful that maybe the world has forgotten about? Um, and so I, I ask you, what can the practice of Lent teach us or call us into? Um, the, the, the key word I had for us today was intentionality. If I had to include anything with Lent at all in a postmodern world, the one thing I would include is just intentionality. Lent is an is a space where we, who are either wondering about the Jesus movement or who are committed to the Jesus movement, explore our own intentionality within that movement. And then the rest is open-ended in my opinion. I'm not gonna say this is what it needs to be. I want us to think about that and be curious about it and wonder and, and think, what does that look like in a world where the church is in rapid decline and um, it's not going to be what it was in the times in which we grew up. Um, in a postmodern world, what does it look like if you're not even gonna call yourself a Christian, but you are gonna say, I'm a Jesus follower? I don't know. So that's what I wanted to spend the rest of the time talking about. That's, that's kind of the conversation for today. So kind of thinking about like, how can, like what are the things that we can do that will allow us to reflect on our intentionality in, this, in these, four, these 40 days? Yes, I definitely want, so kind of sticking with our own individualism, right? Well, like done, it, well done, Pastor Chris. But then, I mean, I think that, uh, so I was thinking about that too, and I'm like, well, one, one thing that you're setting up, because you're also saying, like, I, you don't want to say, do this so that you can think about intentionality, but you do have the Wednesday suppers where people are getting together and talking about what is it, like, what does Christianity mean, and like, how can we connect together as a community? We have our Monday potlucks where we get together and kind of have these conversations. Uh, so it's a little bit of like, I'm not telling you, like, there's not things that we have to do, but we're doing these things if you want, and it's a community-based thing. Absolutely, I want to leave the option for that, of course. Um, I think, but I also want to say what draws me into that word intentionality is we are such, a, we live in such a suspicious time and for those of us who are millennials or younger, we, we are built with a distrust radar of literally everything we hear and read and see. That's just part of our generation. Um, and, and because of that, we take our time really studying something before we commit to it. Um, I very much felt that way about when Jasmine invited me to like, oh, Lent supper is yeah. like, Ooh, that sounds religious. <laughs> I don't think I want to come. She's like, it's not religious. I'm like, it's called Lent. Yeah. Lent suppers. I don't know. <laughs> and, I, and I imagine some of you, I mean, I don't imagine, I know. Some of you have really taken your time 
with unorthodox. What is this about? Is this something I want to be committed to? Um, I don't want to say your intentionality needs to be focused on Bithynia, but I do want you in, some, in spaces of your life, whatever that looks like, to be intentional about how you are going to follow through with whatever your values are. Well, I think um, I've had a couple of thoughts about you know what Bethania has done over the past, and then how they kind of you know, haven't done things and not done things. And uh, it just it coincided with almost coincided with Lent is the flocking with the flamingos. So to me, I see that as building more community together because you're getting the youth involved. You're
you know, as more as value-based and how we live those values out. Right. Yeah. Grant? Um, I have an interesting perspective because uh, this is actually my first church experience um, sitting here with you guys on Sundays. It's the first time I've ever um, been Sundays in church. Um, I would, you know, you, you, I hear you talk about how um, everybody here has something that I gave up during Lent, I was supposed to remember 
um, that Jesus gave up way more than me. And so every time I had a craving, I had to think about that. Jesus gave up way more than me. You're acting like a little bitch and push through because Jesus died for you, you awful sinner. Right? Exactly. Your cushy life compared to like the hardcore life that Jesus loves to Yeah. Good old Protestant kids. These weren't. Think about that conversation if the sin, the sin focus was on the community, though. That we're together and trying to solve our problem. Yeah. And, and we're looking at things that are, I would say, more systemic. You know? Um, prayer and reflection. Again, um, usually done very personally and privately, and again, focused on your own personal needs, etc. Imagine prayer and reflection in a more communal way. I think one way to think about that was that breathing meditation we did during the Care for Creation series, where we just imagined our breath connecting us to each other and to the people in the community and just expanding that to literally the entire world. That, that was a very communal uh, meditation, prayer reflection kind of a thing. When we were kids, what um, my parents had us do for a time period was that before every dinner, we had to go around and say something that we were thankful for uh, as a way to like sort of bring it in prayer, but mostly thinking about it as this like reflection of something that we appreciate that we had. And my sister and I hated it so much. We're like, we hate doing like, why can't we just eat? Uh, it didn't really do very much for us, but now as an adult, I do think about like when people when people pray before meals, I do think more about like yeah, there is a lot that went into this meal that we should be grateful that we're here. We're we should be grateful of all the people, all the work that went into this meal, um, and using that as a time of reflection. Yeah, I like that. What do you think orthopraxy versus orthodoxy means? <laughs> Practice versus belief. Yeah, but the ortho part. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Way to practice exactly. Um, I can't. I mean, there are churches that are focused on orthopraxy, and they're always marginalized churches. So you think of the Black Church in America is very focused on orthopraxy. By the way, I really appreciated what Brad and she said about Black churches being Christian nationalists and the difference between a progress focus versus a backwards focus. Um, when he initially told me that you know churches of color are, are Christian nationalists, I thought, oh my God, what does that mean? Um, and then when he described what he meant, I immediately thought, I've been in those churches where they're very much about, and we've talked about this too, Southside churches in Chicago calling their aldermen who are, who are up for election and really grilling them on how they were going to respond to the needs of their community, which was almost always gun violence and uh, poverty. And, 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 and Onishi would say that, that those were Christian nationalist churches um, and not in, a, not in a necessarily negative way. Um, but again, church, uh, black churches, uh, Latin American churches, very much focused on orthopraxy, meaning the, the stuff that Jesus tells us to physically do as opposed to the stuff that we think the, the Bible tells us to believe. Meaning things need to change. Yeah. <laughs> Desperately. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so kind of all that considered, then what does Lent maybe look look like for us today? What hope does it bring to us? If you have a response to that, let me know. Otherwise, those can be questions you go home and think about.
I like the idea that, I mean, just the community stuff that's there, but then I was thinking, like, if the value system is that we're trying to support other people, that would be, you know, like, another practice could be, like, as a community, we come together to do, I don't know, it would be, like, a volunteer program. Uh, well, let me even, sh let me challenge this a little bit. Because I'm not saying that we as a church, as an unorthodox community, uh, or, or maybe like you as an individual, like that you can go and find a group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right? yeah. It doesn't have to be just our group. Yeah, it doesn't have to be restricted to this. Um, this, this could, there, there are so many communities engaged in, in like what I would call orthopraxy, whether they know it or not. Um, and there's communities there. Our food distribution has its own community. People get together every Tuesday. They know each other. They like each other. They fart around and have fun and make jokes while also feeding people who need it. Um, uh, there's a community that meets every now and then at the botanic garden to help clean it up or plant new native plants, etc. The Sweeney's you got a part of that kind of um, for Henry's Cub Scouts. Um, so so I, I just wanted to expand on that because I think that's great, yeah. Any other thoughts? What does is, what is Lent maybe look like for us today? Steve. Well, it occurs to me that it has occurred to me that um, something happens in our heads, in our minds, when we get to the place where we have what we need in our life. We have food and shelter and so forth. And now it's what do we want? And we be, we can become obsessed with what we want and need what we want. And that's individualistic rather than communal. And so, you know. That was one of the things I was thinking about in terms of why we behave the way we do, because what we want is usually very individualistic. And so... I'm going to guess that nobody heard anything you just said. So yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. I would like you to repeat it, if you can, and uh, maybe a little louder, too. Oh, just that um, I think most of us have reached the point where we have what we need. We have shelter and food, security, um, things and family. And now we're in the place where what do we want? And we can be taken over by the media, by uh, Walmart, by whatever, suggesting this is what you want. And we come to think that we need what we want. And that's essentially a very individualistic thing. And I think it, um, it really impacts how we behave as people who have what we need towards people who don't. I think, but also a big shift in the human mind there to yeah. um, really reflect on that and, and perhaps even try to strip us of our own, uh, not just individual focus, but our own kind of scarcity focus, um, you know, and, and navigate more towards a uh, emphasis on sustainability.
wonderful chaos happening. I don't want anybody to feel, I don't want anybody to feel bad about it either. Yeah. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> um, I'll stop us there. Uh, again, I don't know what the topic is going to be yet next week. I don't know if it's going to be a Lenten thing or something else, but um, I do appreciate this conversation. Hearing it especially makes me grateful that we are a, a group that is really more committed to understanding orthopraxy as opposed to orthodoxy. Um, and I, I do hope this is a time that benefits you with making intentional commitments in your life and those values, whatever that may end up being. So thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.